It is a honor to be here. Can you hear me okay? It's an honor to be here. I think every time uh, I've given a talk or that anyone has an invited talk, it's an honor because you think that your colleagues think that you have something uh, worth hearing. It's a bit different today uh, because when I say it's an honor to be here, I recognize the importance of this place. Uh, shock trauma, obviously, um, has been uh, an amazing gift not only to uh, the people of Maryland but to the fields of critical care and trauma critical care uh, and uh, it is an honor uh, to be here today. So <clears throat> I hope that you'll take something uh, home uh, from my talk today but if you remember nothing else hopefully you'll just be reminded uh, that the rest of our country thinks that you train in a really special place and uh, I hope that you take that back with you when you do your patient care or whatever you're going to be involved with uh, for the rest of the day. So uh, thanks to Mike and uh, for Dr. Zubrow and, and everyone for uh, inviting me here today. So I'm going to talk to you about sepsis. Um, this slide uh, is uh, sort of a summary of what I've been involved with for the last 12 years of my life or maybe even longer. And so <clears throat> my background, as uh, Dr. McCurdy mentioned, is in not only critical care but also in emergency medicine. And uh, what I have spent the most of the last 12 plus years thinking about is on this slide. Uh, I am interested in, in this. Um, it says ED on that slide, but it doesn't have to be in the ED. It could be in the early phases of the ICU therapy. It could be in a medical ward. It could be in the field for that matter. Uh, but we're familiar with when someone sustains either catastrophic illness or injury, we have an opportunity. And the opportunity is to modulate this trajectory. So our trajectories are towards recovery or for not. And uh, I am interested in in general, in the broad sense, uh, what it is that we do or fail to do uh, in this early opportunity that can impact this trajectory. Because most of you now have had the experience where this is the opportunity because outside of this window, uh, the opportunity may be lost on day two, day three of someone's uh, septic insult. There may be no more capacity to move this trajectory, to move the needle on their illness. And so what we do in the front lines in the early hours um, uh, is uh, critically important. And it's sort of been the, um, the central uh, theme of what I've been involved with, uh, not only from a research standpoint, but from a clinical standpoint and the things that I've been focused on. So this led to two parallel research programs in, in a portfolio. One I'm going to be speaking uh, about tomorrow at Dr. Zubrow's uh, Game Change uh, symposium, and that's post-cardiac arrest syndrome and uh, modulating neurological injury after resuscitation from cardiac arrest. Today I'm going to talk about something different. I'm going to be talking about septic shock and sepsis resuscitation, and specifically about uh, the role of microcirculatory dysfunction in the sepsis syndrome and how uh, resuscitation uh, can or cannot modulate that and where we are in our understanding of that and just a, a hopefully a pragmatic approach of how do we assess tissue perfusion at the bedside when we don't have any sort of research tools like in vivo video microscopy, but we just have our uh, clinical senses. Uh, so thanks again for the invitation. So sepsis is obviously a global public health problem. Uh, and we're probably familiar uh, with some of the epidemiology data uh, in the critical care literature. 
but this is the number one killer of people uh, in intensive care units. Uh, and uh, we recognize that this is only going to get worse as more and more people become at risk for developing sepsis syndromes. And so while there's been a large focus on sepsis over the last decade or so, uh, I don't think that this is going to go away. In fact, this is going to be coming more to the forefront uh, of our uh, consciousness as, as providers of critical care services. And this is a slide that was given to me by our colleague Manny Rivers. Uh, about a decade ago, and I still put it in every sepsis talk I give because to me it still resonates. And while this is an old slide, it's still true uh, today. And, and the reason why it resonates with me is it asks you the question, what do you perceive to be an emergency? And so when I was in your uh, seat in training, um, we didn't think of sepsis as, as an emergency. Uh, we just didn't in 1995. Um, uh, but the things that we considered to be emergencies were acute myocardial infarction, stroke, certainly trauma. And while all of these disorders are associated with a very high risk for death, when you compare it to the risk of death from sepsis, um, uh, the risk of death from sepsis stands out. And so I was given this slide uh, by Dr. Rivers when I was considering should I embark upon a career uh, studying the resuscitation of patients with sepsis. And <clears throat> the reason why I found this striking was this sort of discordance. I thought this couldn't be that this disorder is associated with, with such a strikingly high mortality compared to all these things that I thought were true, quote unquote, emergencies. And I would suggest to you that the reason why this is striking uh, in, my, in, in our minds, or at least for me, was because patients with sepsis die in different ways. How does a patient with acute myocardial infarction die? And they have their VF arrest right in the emergency department and, have un, uh, and uh, can't be recovered with CPR. Uh, you're all familiar here at shock trauma with how the trauma victim might die a very dramatic death in a trauma bay uh, as you're resuscitating them from their hemorrhagic shock uh, uh, or their traumatic brain injury. Sepsis patients die differently. Uh, they die days later, and they typically die of multiple organ failure. And it's a much different sort of death because it can be very quiet. It can be behind a, a closed door with just the family gathered around. And in fact, it's quiet enough so that the people that were on the front lines taking care of this patient may not even have awareness that the patient died several days later. It's much different. It doesn't stick in our consciousness like the deaths of these other disorders. Uh, but uh, it certainly is strikingly high. The numbers uh, are true, and, and that is why um, uh, it has to be on the forefront of our minds and in our, in our research um, programs uh, going forward. So what we're going to talk about today are three things. Uh, number one, we'll talk about how do we identify the patient that's going to go south? How do we identify the patient that's going to need augmentation of tissue perfusion and become at high risk of death? 
The next thing I'll talk about, microcirculation. And so much of what we talk about in the septic shock and resuscitation is macrocirculatory. It's these things, these numbers that we see on the bedside monitor. But what about the actual, what's going on in the microvessels and, and how does that relate to the manifestations that we're seeing clinically? And lastly, I'll talk about in 2014, what is the quote unquote holy grail? What is the optimal endpoint of resuscitation for patients with sepsis? Uh, just a sneak preview is, is uh, that there may not be one, but I think that, that uh, uh, recent data over the last, not just 10 years, but then even just recently with the results of the process trial, which I'm sure you've all uh, reviewed in this sort of a forum before, um, uh, I think that uh, we'll, we'll discuss that also. And, and I'll just give you my opinion, and, and much of what I say uh, in this talk is just in the domain of it's just my opinion. So first of all, identification. Uh, sepsis has an identity crisis, right? So there's no test for sepsis, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. And if you take a patient with severe sepsis, sepsis plus acute organ system dysfunction, you line up 10 seasoned physicians or clinicians in front of that patient, perhaps four will think they absolutely have sepsis, four will uh, think that no they don't, and two might say, well, I'm not really sure. Uh, and that, that makes this disease a problem, and that's, why, that's one of the main contributors to why sepsis still has a 20 to 30 percent mortality rate, uh, even in 2014. It's because early identification is so difficult, and then by the time it becomes obvious, the patient can be unrecoverable. So one of the, one of the um, areas of research in sepsis that's been um, uh, intensely studied over the last 15 years or so has been biomarkers. We want a blood test to tell us if our patient uh, has sepsis. Uh, but when you're talking about biomarkers for sepsis, there's, there are really two important questions. Uh, do you want your, your biomarker to be diagnostic or do you want it to risk stratify? Because those are clearly very different things. I'll just, I'll just um, explain a little bit more about what I mean by that. A patient with systemic inflammation you recognize on clinical criteria. Now, are you looking for your biomarker to tell you this is sepsis, meaning an infectious etiology of their systemic inflammation versus not, versus some other etiology or some other type of shock profile, or if you already know that the patient has sepsis, that's not a question in your mind, what's going to happen to them in the next 24, 48, 72 hours? Are they going to be the patient that's uh, getting tra uh, transitioned to PO antibiotics and they're preparing for the discharge, or is it a patient who's going to be in multiple organ failure? Uh, in the ICU and uh, fighting for their life. And so these are two very different things. Uh, back in um, uh, about five years ago or so, uh, uh, we at Cooper and, and colleagues um, uh, across the country uh, participated in a 10-center study in the emergency department setting of patients with sepsis. And our aim was to find a biomarker panel uh, that would uh, not only identify patients as having sepsis, but also help us risk stratify them. And so the, uh, it was a 1,000 patient uh, study of patients with systemic inflammation and a suspected infection in the emergency department setting, and we drew blood and blood and blood and blood. And we started with a, um, 
a, a candidate list of biomarkers that was about 200 markers long, and all the patients early on got those 200 markers run. And we pared it down and down and down, and eventually came up with nine candidate biomarkers, and then it got down to three. And these three biomarkers were neutrophil gelatinase-associated lipocalin, which is a marker of kidney ischemia. Uh, a, um, uh, it can herald the onset of acute kidney injury, so that makes sense, so injury is part of this. Protein C, which was activation of coagulation, which we know is part of the underpinnings of the sepsis pathophysiology. And then interleukin-1 receptor antagonist, which is a marker of inflammation. So in this panel of biomarkers, we had injury, coagulopathy, and inflammation. Sounded pretty good. When combining all of these biomarkers into uh, a, um, a, a sepsis score that was based on the outcome of these three variables, the area under the curve, so this is the receiver operating characteristic curve, only could get to 0 0.80. Not bad, potentially helpful, definitely not good enough for prime time. Okay, so this was after a thousand patients in emergency departments across the country, 200 candidate biomarkers, and coming down to a panel of three biomarkers, we still couldn't find anything better than this. So why do I show you this slide? If any of us think that in our practice lifetimes, and I know many of you are just embarking on your, pra on your practice lifetime since you're still in training, my personal opinion is that we will not have a test for sepsis. There will be no protein biomarker that unlocks this disease. And so what does that translate to? The same thing that uh, it always translates to. It depends on our clinical acumen. So we're gonna have to have experience we're going to have to pay close attention at the bedside, and it's just a matter of how well you take care of that patient and your attention to detail in identifying the syndrome. I just personally believe that we're not going to have a test for sepsis. And so with early recognition, the, it is when we identify uh, encephalopathy, that's telling you something. The same thing with acute kidney injury. That creatinine of 1.6, well, perhaps that patient's baseline, if you look back, is 0.6. That's also telling you something. And so all of these things put together are important in identifying patients early enough so that we optimize their tissue perfusion at an early stage rather than waiting until they're in that trajectory that becomes unrecoverable. And so early identification is always going to be part and parcel of resuscitation. Uh, because that is our opportunity. Um, so um, blood pressure is the vital sign that we probably most often communicate to our colleagues uh, when we're giving sign out in the ICU. Uh, we give uh, reports of their arterial pressure. Without question, arterial pressure is one of the most important pieces of data that you can obtain on a patient. But we recognize that tissue blood flow derangements can occur in the setting of a normal uh, arterial pressure, and the arterial pressure is limited in that what it can actually tell you. And that's why when, uh, and I just finished giving this talk a couple of weeks ago to our incoming interns at Cooper, and, uh, and I tell them, I'm going to tell you this list, and I'm going to find you. I'm going to see you in the hallway. I'm going to see you in the cafeteria. Don't put your head down in your lunch because you will have to recite these without stuttering, without hesitation. And I'm going to keep asking you in front of all your colleagues and friends until you get it right. 
And you'd be amazed at how quickly these people can learn. Um, uh, but, but all joking aside, this list, this checklist, so to speak, is actually already ingrained in everybody that's in the back of the room that's, that's a faculty physician that, that when uh, we've done it so many times when we assess a patient at a bedside, we don't even realize that we're doing it. Uh, besides hypotension, tachycardia, oligurencephalopathy, peripheral perfusion abnormalities, metabolic acidosis, and respiratory distress. So these things um, uh, uh, are things that we need to ingrain in our brain. It's a checklist. Not only can you never forget it, you have to hardwire it to a point where you don't even realize that you're looking for these things. So in a, in a little while, I'm going to be talking about fancy things like in vivo video microscopy in human subjects to, to try to uh, uh, assess microcirculatory perfusion. That's in our research domain, but this is every day. And so uh, if you're a trainee, do your patients a favor, do yourself a favor, ingrain these things in, in your brain now and hardwire them, because these are the things that really matter and can lead to your early identification now uh, before we get into anything that has to do with research. Uh, lactic acid is, um, uh, is, uh, has gotten a lot of attention in the evaluation of patients with sepsis over the last five or ten years. This is an old test, okay? This is not something new. It's just that we've started to operationalize it into our standard assessments, and that's why it's gotten, it's, it's come back into focus. But obviously, this is not a new parameter. Um, I want to show you a slide uh, from a, uh, this is a secondary analysis uh, of a study that we did in the Emergency Medicine Shock Research Network. And so later in the talk, I'll, I'll be showing you some results of a randomized control trial that we did of lactate clearance versus central venous oxygen saturation as, uh, as an endpoint of resuscitation in patients with sepsis. So this is a secondary analysis of that data. So a secondary analysis means you collected a bunch of data in your um, masthead uh, uh, paper or your, your masthead study, and then you realize that you can test a bunch of important hypotheses by taking other cuts of the data. And so one of the things that we called out long before we did this study is we want to try to evaluate this idea of cryptic shock. And I will be completely honest with you that the aim with this was actually to debunk this myth. Um, and uh, uh, I say that now. And, and the truth is we found very um, uh, striking uh, uh, results. So this, this concept of cryptic shock refers to the state where you have a normal arterial pressure or an arterial pressure that you think is normal for that patient. Uh, and, you, and you have metabolic acidosis, and specifically lactic acidosis. And the idea there is that identifies the patient that's in compensated shock and is about to decompensate, and all the wheels are about to come off. But if you identify this state early enough, you can get ahead of the problem rather than reacting to it, and identification of this uh, is, is um, uh, important clinically. Now, th there's no doubt that we believe that that was true, but we didn't necessarily believe that the mortality was comparable to a patient who is in overt shock, the patient who is profoundly hypotensive and needing vasopressors. And so uh, what we did uh, in this secondary analysis of um, uh, more than 200 patients who presented to the emergency department uh, with severe sepsis is we uh, compared the outcomes of patients with overt shock uh, to those who cryptic shock. So the overt shock cohort are those who had 
uh, sustained hypotension, more often than not requiring vasoactive drugs to sustain the blood pressure, and the other were normotensive patients who just had lactate elevation. And while we believe that that was an important physiological sign, we didn't believe that the mortality could actually be the same. And what we found here, as you can see in this Kaplan-Meier survival curve, uh, that the outcomes actually were not dissimilar. And so that was striking for us. We thought to, uh, to debunk this a bit, and, uh, or debunk this a bit, and what we actually found is it's true. Uh, uh, the Manny Rivers principle of cryptic shock actually holds true, and that was striking for all of us. And so we, the only real take-home moment is that the lactate is actually telling you something. And in, in many studies, and, I'm, and I didn't put these slides in the slide deck because there are so many, but it is an independent predictor of death. So what is independent predictor of death? That means when you factor in everything else, including how the patient looks at the bedside, meaning looks good or doesn't look good, it still matters. So if any of you are from an emergency medicine background, uh, I often get asked the question, yeah, but if the patient looks good, does that lactate of six really matter? Well, first of all, if you look closely, I bet the patient doesn't look good, okay? Second of all, would you say that if it was the troponin, right, for a patient with a suspected acute coronary syndrome, that the patient looks good but the, the troponin is 20? No, what happens when that, when that occurs? People run around with their hands up in the air, the troponin is 20, right? Well, similarly, this lactic acid elevation is telling you something, and so it shouldn't be ignored. Okay, so next we're going to go from how do we identify the patient with potential impending tissue hyperperfusion or actual tissue hyperperfusion, and then we're going to look specifically at tissue hypoperfusion. One of the things that I want to communicate to you, if, you is, if this is the first time that you've heard a talk uh, around this uh, uh, topic, we're talking about intrinsic microcirculatory dysfunction meaning something that's actually occurring in the microvessels themselves, and we'll talk about all the, all the mechanisms there briefly. But we're not just talking about downstream effects of arterial hypotension, meaning they've got a low blood pressure, so there's bad microcirculation, as if it's just downstream flow. We're talking about something intrinsic, that may be occurring, but it's compounded by something that's actually going on in the microvessels. And so this, um, uh, I should also mention that although uh, in the interest of time, the data that I'm going to show you in this talk is just related to human subjects, it has been shown over and over and over again in experimental models using intravital video microscopy uh, in, um, in animals who have had uh, septic insults um, uh, that intrinsic microcirculatory dysfunction occurs. And so this, uh, I consider this in, in a sense to be translational research, what I'm showing you in human subjects. This is not just something that we're finding in humans. This is just something we're starting to explore in humans that we've known happens, bi that is biologically true, that we've been, that we've known for decades. Um, and so what are we talking about when we say the microcirculation? So we're talking about the network of capillaries uh, and venules, um, uh, arterioles, capillaries, postcapillary venules, this network that's, that runs throughout the body, and typically we're talking about vessels that are less than 100 microns in di diameter. And so um, we, the question, why study the microcirculation, These are, this is my answer for why. Number one is oxygen transport, right? In shock and resuscitation, we're always talking about oxygen transport, where this is where it's actually occurring. 
are things we see on the monitor or surrogates, arterial pressure, et cetera. The oxygen transport is actually occurring in the microvessels. So we also recognize that the endothelium is not just a passive bystander in health and disease. It's playing an active role. Uh, there, are, there, are there, there are people who study the endothelium that consider, consider the endothelium to be an organ system in itself. Whether or not that's true, I won't get into that debate. But clearly, endothelial dysfunction plays a really big role in health and disease. And this is our source of endothelium. This is the largest source of endothelium. And lastly, microcirculation indices can tell you things or give you data that you can't get just from looking at the bedside monitor uh, that shows you the arterial pressure. So um, I think a sepsis is a disease of the microcirculation. And what I mean by that is that I can describe much, not all, but much of the pathophysiology of sepsis right here in the microcirculatory unit. So this is arterial, capillary, postcapillary venule uh, in this schematic. So this is where the vasodilation occurs. Uh, this is where the endothelial dysfunction occurs. This is also where we get microthrombi uh, and activation of coagulation. And then uh, white blood cells uh, adhere to the uh, postcapillary venules and further jam up the microcirculation, impending uh, flow through the microcirculation, microcirculatory unit. And as I mentioned earlier, so this, these are intrinsic events in the microcirculation, not just downstream effects of low arterial pressure. So this schematic just shows you a multitude of different potential mechanisms uh, that are contributing to the dysfunction inside microvessels. Uh, besides altered local perfusion pressures, per perhaps from those downstream effects of lower arterial pressure, we have intrinsic endothelial activation and dysfunction, microvascular thromboses. We have rheologic alterations. That means that the red blood cell deformability is altered so that the red blood cells can't get through the microvessels uh, as they would in a healthy state. Leukocyte adhesion, which typically occurs in the postcapillary venules and shunting, all of this contributes to a condition that we'll call microcirculatory failure. And I should also mention that <clears throat> we recognize that all shock is not circulatory. You know, bioenergetic failure and mitochondrial failure plays a big part in that. And sometimes they're, they're going on at the same time in uh, some degree, or perhaps microcirculatory failure triggers the mitochondrial and bioenergetic failure. Uh, and so they go together. I, don't, I guess I just don't want to communicate that shock is all circulatory in nature, but these things are clearly going on in the septic shock state. And specifically talking about oxygen transport, Microcirculation, uh, as we said earlier, is the largest site of tissue oxygen transport in the body. So this cartoon just shows us what happens from a schematic uh, when we have, let's say this <clears throat> cylinder represents the area of tissue that a capillary is responsible for oxygenating. So that's the, the uh, intercapillary distance. Well, when we have capillaries drop out, uh, because they get uh, jammed up or, or hypoperfusion, this intercapillary difference then increases. Uh, and we have, um, I think it's easy to conceptualize then uh, why it is that uh, tissue dysoxia is, uh, is um, accelerated in a state of microcirculatory dysfunction. 
So I told you that intravital video microscopy and animal models have documented this going back several decades. What about human subjects? And so uh, I'm going to show you now the only modality that we have right now. Now, there are many surrogates, so metabolic acidosis is one. There have been a number of uh, decades ago we used to use gastric tonometry to try to assess um, uh, the get some sort of global readout uh, of tissue hypoperfusion. But now we can use in, or, uh, in vivo video microscopy techniques to actually look at microcirculatory blood flow. And so this is a, a schematic of what happens with a technique called side stream dark field imaging, which I'm going to show you uh, in just a minute. And so uh, the, uh, in the interest of time, I'll just summarize to say that it uses an, a, a stroboscopic LED light uh, that is, uh, that is uh, absorbed uh, at a wavelength by red blood cells, allowing you to see red blood cells. Um, and I'll show you a picture of this uh, in just a minute. So um, I'm going to show you some images of side stream dark field imaging and uh, the, uh, the assessment and the scoring um, and how we use a semi-quantitative technique to put data to these images you're seeing. That's sort of a whole talk for a different day um, uh, and uh, rather complex. But I think that in this uh, two-minute video, you'll, you'll be able to just get sort of a gestalt about what I'm talking about. So this is that uh, image you saw was, this is sublingual site, I should mention, because we remember that embryologically, at least, the sublingual site is related to the gut, and the gut should be the canary in the coal mine for global tissue hypoperfusion. So that was sublingual microcirculation in a uh, normal, healthy subject. So this is a patient that actually looks really good from the doorway, right? All the vital signs are normal. The central venous sat is actually normalized. and the um, uh, But they've got severe metabolic acidosis with a, with a striking uh, rise in the serum lactate concentration. And so here, if I had to summarize this part of the video in a word, it would be heterogeneity. So you have some areas of very brisk flow, and then you have some areas where it's non-continuous. In fact, it looks rather stopped. And so um, I think just from a, uh, uh, a gestalt sort of view, you can see that there's something that looks different uh, than uh, in, the, um, uh, in the first patient that I showed you. Now this one, you know, we don't need any fancy research devices to tell us that this patient's in trouble, right? So we have a markedly low arterial pressure. This patient was on multiple, every vasoactive drug we could give this patient, and they were, they had just refractory shock, and this was, this is a uh, pre-terminal uh, data acquisition here because every number uh, was strikingly abnormal. Uh, and here you, you see what, what um, blood flow looks like in tissues when somebody's about to have circulatory arrest. Now, you didn't need this kind of information to tell you that the patient was in trouble. So what I think, what I'm most interested with is the middle uh, 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 images where from the doorway, the patient would have looked, looked fine to everybody, and yet things were not fine or things did not look like they uh, looked in a normal healthy state. So again, this is, this is something that the, the um, semi, or the, the, the techniques that we use, um, I'm not going to get into a lot of that today. I'm going to show you some data, but um, uh, I think you get an idea of what, uh, of what it looks like with this technique. So 
Uh, my colleagues and I at Cooper um, uh, were one of uh, many uh, uh, different uh, centers uh, across the world that have tried to incorporate this technique into our research program so that while we're enrolling patients in randomized controlled trials of lactate clearance versus SCVO2, for example, we're also obtaining data on um, video, micro, video microscopy data on these patients. So um, uh, this is, the, um, is a scale uh, from zero to three, and this is our semi-quantitative uh, assessment. And you can just see in, in, in uh, this paper from years ago, uh, sepsis looked different from normal, and those that were going to die looked worse than, than patients uh, that were survivors. Um, this is data from uh, John Louis Vincent and Daniel DeBacker's group in Belgium, which looked at the same. Uh, the the um, uh, y-axis here is a little bit different. It's proportion of perfused vessels, but this shows you perfusion over time. Uh, so uh, this, uh, you'll notice that the data points were not really divergent. Uh, in the uh, early hours of disease presentation. And this is different from uh, the data I showed you here, which this was, by the way, the earliest time point. This was on arrival in the emergency department. Um, so their early indicators uh, were not that much different, but patients that had a trajectory uh, towards a good outcome uh, had improvement in their proportion of perfused vessels versus those who died in shock. Now that's probably not surprising, but what is more interesting to me is this line which shows you those that died not in shock but in multiple organ failure. And those patients also did not recover a normal proportion of perfused vessels like those that were on a trajectory towards survival. So this is um, uh, another study from our group um, that looked at the change in the first three hours uh, of the emergency department resuscitation. So um, uh, an early time point and then three hours later, and we looked at the delta because we thought that static measurements probably weren't that um, uh, informative, but the change in the values might be most informative. And so what this shows is that those that improve SOFA score, so for those not familiar with that, this is sequential organ failure assessment score. It's just a way of quantifying uh, organ dysfunction in a patient. Those that improved by 24 hours uh, were more likely to have an increase in their, in their microcirculatory blood flow. Uh, during their resuscitation uh, versus those that did not improve their organ failure scores from zero times zero in the emergency department to 24 hours later. And this is similar data, just represented a different way, but from the same paper. Those that improved, uh, that were in the top quartile improving their SOFA score had uh, the largest percent change in their microcirculatory flow index uh, versus those that had uh, the uh, most uh, marked worsening of their organ failure assessment score over uh, 24 hours. So <clears throat> while we have interest in this, uh, this technique, uh, different techniques to assess microcirculation, we recognize that this is nothing new. This has always been there, and it's been there in the laboratory for decades and studied with intravital video microscopy. It's just that we never had a way of looking at it. Um, and so next I'm going to talk to you about uh, if we can monitor microcirculation in patients with sepsis, what are we going to do about it? And is just conventional resuscitation what we want to do, or do we actually want to give some sort of um, novel agent 
to try to recruit or rescue the microcirculation in a patient with dysfunctional uh, microcirculatory blood flow. And so uh, I'm going to talk for a little bit now about nitric oxide. So the nitric oxide story in sepsis is actually rather complex, as, as many of you are, are most likely aware. So nitric oxide has always thought to be harmful. Right? Because nitric oxide is what causes the arterioles to vasodilate, which is responsible in large part for the arterial hypotension. However, in uh, experimental models of nitric oxide uh, blockade, uh, uh, the indices of tissue perfusion in the animals often uh, worsens. So the arterial pressure recovers but the indices of blood flow to tissues decreases. And in the only uh, phase three trial of uh, NO synthase inhibition uh, uh, in human subjects, it was stopped early because of a signal of harm. So we've always thought that nitric oxide is bad, but maybe it's adaptive and not maladaptive because nitric oxide is the single most important molecule for keeping microvessels open. So maybe it's adaptive in the sense that it can help us to, um, to uh, augment or sustain tissue hypoperfusion or, or tissue perfusion even at the expense of arterial pressure. So really, the nitric oxide story, in my mind, isn't complete in the sense that we're not sure if it's the criminal or it's the policeman. So the history has always been to try to block it, even though tissue in, uh, per, per, uh, indices of tissue perfusion in animals suggest they may get impaired, <coughs> and the human subjects data that I just mentioned. But what if we actually try to give more? And so I recognize it's a little bit um, contrarian, but it was based in this hypothesis and, and what m my colleagues worked on over the last uh, few years. It was based on this uh, um, report that was in The Lancet back in 2002 when Spronk and coworkers recruited patients with septic shock who were fully resuscitated, intravascular volume expansion, et cetera, and yet had um, per, uh, persistent dependence on arterial, uh, on uh, vasoactive agents. And what they found using similar techniques, not this exact same video microscopy technique as I showed you, but a little bit different one, but very similar. Uh, they found that these patients had, in small, medium, and large microvessels, had uh, tissue hyperperfusion that was augmented by a novel agent. Does anybody uh, want to guess the novel agent? So it was IV nitroglycerin. Now, I'm not advocating administration of IV nitroglycerin. There's no evidence for that. But the idea here is that if we give agents that can donate uh, nitric oxide, perhaps we can recruit microcirculatory blood flow. The challenge, of course, is that how are you going to do that in a septic shock patient in, in the context of a clinical environment when, obviously, uh, you're worried about arterial pressure? So uh, we wrote a grant years ago, and uh, this, uh, this paper is going to be out uh, next month, I believe, in critical care medicine, uh, because we thought that if we used inhaled nitric oxide, which although years ago we thought that that couldn't get systemic um, uh, or couldn't get extrapulmonary, it can form nitrite or um, uh, and, and get into the bloodstream that way. And so we, had a, we did a randomized controlled trial to determine if inhaled nitric oxide would be an effective treatment for microcirculatory dysfunction and organ failure in early sepsis therapy. So this was a randomized controlled trial funded by NIGMS. 
And so um, uh, nitric oxide, as we mentioned, is a critical molecule for maintaining microcirculatory patency. Um, exogenous NO administration uh, may represent a potential treatment. And um, in the interest of time, I'm just going to uh, play through here a little bit. This is a single center randomized controlled trial or interventions. We either inhaled nitric oxide for 40 parts per million for six hours versus sham INO administration. And so this, is, this just shows you the study design. So we thought that we had to optimize macrocirculatory optimization before we do any microcirculatory intervention, or you're not going to know if any signal you might see is due to heterogeneity in the degree of macrocirculatory optimization. So patients got identified, they got resuscitated, the central venous pressure map and central venous oxygen saturation endpoints of resuscitation or lactate clearance, and then we uh, exposed them to study drug. Our uh, outcome measures were changes in microcirculatory flow index as well as lactate clearance from the blood and sequential organ failure assessment score from 0 to 24 hours. So going back to this uh, concept that maybe microcirculatory flow and, flow and multiple organ failure are uh, interrelated. Uh, the bottom line here is that this was a quote-unquote negative study. Um, uh, this slide shows you that in the inhaled NO group, they actually had a little bit of decrease in their microcirculatory flow um, uh, compared to those uh, that got sham administration. But the reason why we found this valuable and initially, this was powered to 100, um, 133 patients uh, to detect an, uh, a change in the organ failure scores. It was stopped early at 50 for futility uh, to, sh to um, uh, show an impact on the mechanistic endpoint was a change in the microcirculation. Uh, but the reason why we found this valuable is that we were developing a framework of macrocirculatory optimization followed by a microcirculatory intervention to try to test this hypothesis. And now we could plug in other agents to recruit the microcirculation uh, into that framework. Um, one, of the, uh, uh, one of the important considerations here might be timing. So we required that they become, that they were fully resuscitated before uh, the nitric oxide intervention. And this paper from uh, Dr. Vincent and co-workers uh, from Critical Care Medicine uh, two years ago uh, uh, used a uh, nitric oxide synthase cofactor but they did it in these, in these um, uh, animals early on to prevent the microcirculatory insert, insert rather than it, uh, insult, rather than to try to rescue the microcirculation after it's already occurred. And um, they had uh, very interesting results in that study, and maybe early interventions uh, really could uh, change a trajectory. So in the last... Um, a few minutes here, I just want to talk about uh, just a pragmatic approach to resuscitation and the question of w what are we shooting for uh, or what, sh what ought we aim for when we're resuscitating patients with sepsis. And our goal, of course, is to restore perfusion, uh, restore perfusion to, to uh, vital organs. And <clears throat> it seems like if you go back and look at the history of hemodynamic optimization in the critical care literature, every investigator has been on the search for the holy grail, right? So what is the ultimate optimal resuscitation endpoint? As if there is just one, as opposed to every index that you could target that, that might be a, a window into the degree of tissue hypoperfusion. But before asking what resuscitation endpoint should we target, I think a more important and more basic question is 
should we target anything at all? Meaning, should we target one specific physiological variable or a set of, speci- uh, of physiologic variables versus just as a, a gestalt and not aiming for anything in particular or trying to achieve uh, an endpoint? So this was a meta-analysis done uh, by Alan Jones in uh, our group uh, in the Emergency Medicine Shock Research Network. And this is a meta-analysis of studies that did uh, what we call quantitative resuscitation, uh, and we just use that term to refer to targeting predefined quantitative endpoints rather than just a gestalt. And um, uh, this shows you the, uh, the papers um, uh, up until 2008 uh, that had been published in randomized controlled trials. And what this uh, uh, forest plot represents is that in patients who had early intervention, so this is defined as within the first 24 hours versus those that were late, there was a signal of benefit when the intervention was early, and there was no such signal when the intervention was late, meaning that patients could be enrolled after 24 hours. And that, that was largely, in my opinion, the problem with, with much of the data on hemodynamic, hemodynamic optimization is that some of these studies, these landmark clinical trials, it were still enrolling patients up to 72 hours after initial presentation when there was absolutely no capacity, and I think we all know that from our clinical experience, really no capacity uh, to, uh, or limited capacity compared to the early hours, limited capacity to change a trajectory. So um, that is, a hy- that is the, the hypothesis then. What if, what if we just do it early? And that's a hypothesis that motivated Manny Rivers and coworkers to do the study of early goal-directed therapy in septic shock that was published back in 2001 in the New England Journal. I find this data striking right here. The goal-directed therapy paper, the original report, has been cited, and, and the last time I checked was May of this year, almost 7,000 times in the biomedical literature. That is, if anyone doesn't think that resuscitation in sepsis is a big deal, that's a lot of citations. In fact, it's one of the most often cited randomized controlled trials since the year 2000. It's the second most cited in the last 50 years. In the last 50 years. So this is obviously a big deal. It's obviously an area area of intense debate. Um, And um, this is the uh, protocol that Rivers and coworkers um, uh, used. So in addition to conventional hemodynamic endpoints, they also targeted central venous oxygen saturation uh, as a uh, monitor of adequacy of resuscitation. So for those of you not familiar, so central venous oxygen saturation would be measured in the superior vena cava versus conventional mixed venous oxygen saturation measured in the pulmonary artery. And if we have markedly low values for those numbers, it indicates for us an imbalance, a tissue oxygen debt, that there is some problem with oxygen delivery, it is not adequate to meet tissue oxygen demands, which warrants an algorithmic approach to the, to the components of oxygen delivery, which are carrying capacity, arterial oxygen saturation, and cardiac output. And so that is what uh, was the basis, uh, the underpinnings really of the river study, which showed striking mortality benefits. And we at Cooper... Um, implemented a goal-directed resuscitation strategy. This is a chief resident of mine from, I I believe, back in 2005, resuscitating a patient with multiple organ failure who came through the front doors of our emergency department um, uh, and normalizing all these resuscitation endpoints within the first three hours. In our research network, Emergency Medicine Shock Research Network, we said that this is uh, great. 
However, uh, we there are many, many, many more hypotheses that, that need to be tested. And one uh, was that we tested uh, lactate clearance versus central venous oxygen saturation as goals of early sepsis therapy. We knew that lactate and SCVO2 were not just two sides of the same coin because they're different physiological indicators. But if you compare them head to head, how do they um, uh, perform in a randomized control trial? And so what we did was just we had uh, identical treatment alg resuscitation algorithms uh, in the emergency department for these patients, uh, whereas we targeted lactate clearance in one arm uh, and central venous oxygen saturation in another. And this is the results. And so um, this was a non-inferiority study. So we were testing that lactate clearance was non-inferior to SCVO2. And you can see uh, the uh, mortality uh, proportions there. And just represented another way, a non-inferiority study tests um, uh, compared to a predefined endpoint, which we said was 10% uh, lowering uh, or 10% worsening uh, of the survival fraction. Uh, if the uh, confidence interval was completely to the right of this line, one, some authors would suggest that you can conclude superiority, but that's debatable. Uh, ours went through uh, uh, this uh, line, and so the, our conclusion was non-inferiority. So we found no difference in mortality for patients with severe sepsis and septic shock resuscitated the protocol that used lactate clearance compared to SCBO2 as a method of measuring total body oxygen metabolism. So these things are directly related to what we talked about in the middle of this talk. We were talking about microcirculation. Although we were talking about in vivo video microscopy and research methods, those aren't prime time. Those aren't ready for prime time. Those aren't things that we can do at the bedside. These are things that we can do at the bedside, but they're telling us, uh, they're giving us information on uh, tissue perfusion and microcirculatory blood flow. Um, we uh, used a cutoff of 10% in the lactate clearance study, uh, but uh, because that was based on um, uh, what Alan Jones uh, found to be the, uh, the most defensible cutoff uh, based on the biomedical literature at that time. But what we actually found is that lactate normalization had the uh, best odds ratio uh, for in-hospital survival. And so while that hasn't been tested in a randomized control trial, um, our group, and, and again, this is a secondary analysis of the, of the study that I just showed you, another secondary analysis. This suggests that normalization is better. Even though it hasn't been tested in a randomized controlled trial, I think that you might think that's intuitive. Uh, uh, I do too. So I'm going to suspect that you all in this forum or in, in your own um, uh, uh, areas of shock trauma have discussed this paper. Uh, this, is, this is the process trial. A randomized trial of protocol-based care for early septic shock. So this was an NIH-funded uh, study, um, about a $19 million effort, uh, as I understand it, testing very important hypotheses. Uh, this is a landmark paper. Um, it was, it's critically important. What it did is it tested uh, three different treatment algorithms. <coughs> Excuse me. One, the conventional rivers uh, protocol. Two was just wild type usual care, good luck, right? And the third one was non-invasive, but a protocol nonetheless. So a rigorous, very regimented resuscitation protocol, yet not based on invasive hemodynamic endpoints. <clears throat> As you're probably aware, there was no difference in the primary outcome of in-hospital death, uh, or it, there was no um, difference in, in, in death across these three different uh, treatment uh, allocations. So what are we supposed to do now? And so what I'm going to do in just concluding in the last few minutes is just tell you my opinion. 
Um, and, and it's really based on a historical perspective. And people often ask me, why is it that the process trial uh, was negative when we've been basing what we do for so long on the Rivers trial? And I think that the historical contexts were completely different. So my, uh, uh, my uh, training program was uh, in the mid to late 90s. And I can tell you back then, uh, we did not treat sepsis as an emergency. I don't mean we in my hospital, I mean we in medicine. So a patient with severe sepsis, where no one's really picked up on the fact that the creatinine's doubled, or the patient's encephalopathic, or the patient's got a metabolic acidosis, or they got some uh, acute lung injury developing, but they're not hypotensive, right? They don't have overt hypotension, so that's okay. So they come into the emergency department, let's say the source is pneumonia, they get their antibiotics, they get put in a hallway bed, and they wait to go upstairs. Until, of course, what happens? The arterial pressure drops, and now it's 60 over palp, and now it's an emergency, and everybody's running around uh, frantic because now we have an emergency on our hands when we actually had one at the point when the, when the patient rolled through the front door. This is the backdrop on which the river study was done. So usual care in when that study was conducted was completely different than it has been over the last uh, a few years that the process trial was conducted. We now, we now know that sepsis is in fact an emergency. Of course it is. And we treat it accordingly. Okay? So many of us uh, that are involved in this scientific community and, and going to the meetings, we thought that this study was going to be negative and in fact it was. It's because usual care has changed. So whether or not you pick apart the river study or not, I will tell you one thing that it did, and I know this for certain. It changed how we think about sepsis as an emergency. And there's no way to measure how many lives that, is, that has uh, uh, impacted over the last 12 or so years across the country, but I know it's a big number, and it's because we think of this differently. Now the usual care arm in the process trial uh, is, being, uh, is receiving care by, by, by clinicians who believe this to be an emergency and act accordingly. And so uh, I think both papers are landmark. I think that the process trial is landmark, but I think the river study has changed the landscape of how we think about this disease literally across the world. Um, similarly, um, what are, are there parallels here with acute myocardial infarction? So before there was ever such a thing as a CCU, acute myocardial infarction was treated with bed rest, oxygen, and morphine. And then in the CCU area, we got other therapies. And now we're in the reperfusion area that has lowered the incidence, not only mortality, but cardiogenic shock in patients that have acute myocardial infarction. It's an entirely different landscape. So if you tried to do a clinical trial here, what was your capacity to move the needle? Pretty great. If you try to do a randomized control trial here, what's your capacity to show a difference? not that much. It's because there's been a shifting landscape. And now we think that sepsis is an emergency. Thank God we think sepsis is an emergency because it always has been. We just didn't know it yet. Uh, if you don't believe that and we now think sepsis is an emergency, let's look at this study from Australia. 
It was published earlier this year in JAMA. And when you're looking at observational data over large cohorts, uh, and you can see the number of patients uh, in their registries uh, along the uh, x-axis. And this corresponds to the N in each of these years. And we see a steady decline in the rate of mortality uh, over the time when uh, we initially had the first report of the Rivers trial until now. There are a number of potential methodological limitations anytime you're looking at big cohort studies and, and is this really cause and effect or not. They used a rigorous methodology that can adjust for just about everything you can possibly adjust for. I think this data is really compelling. We see, we're seeing declining rates of sepsis uh, over the years in the U.S. and here in Australia. So sepsis is now being treated as an emergency, and I, and I think that that has been, um, uh, although unmeasurable impact on the lives of patients, uh, that's been the game changer uh, in the treatment of sepsis. So we talked initially about how do you identify patients, uh, patients that are going to need uh, aggressive resuscitation or at risk for tissue hypoperfusion. We talked about tissue hypoperfusion itself. We got into the microvessels and, and looked at all that pathophysiology and what data exists in human subjects. And then we stepped back out of that, and we talked about just pragmatically. Is there a holy grail? Well, my opinion is no. Um, I like the and approach, lactate clearance and SCVO2, and arterial pressure optimization, and restoring their urine output, and, and, and. If I'm the patient, I want you to look at all of those things, not just one holy grail sort of approach. Look at the whole patient. So it's been a... Um, uh, an honor to be here. As I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, shock trauma is a special place, and, and I hope that when you go back uh, to your work today, you remember that uh, the rest of the country thinks so, and, and, and I thank you all very much for the invitation.